listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Knapp. Yes, it's episode 77 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo with Thomas Neff. No Alexander Gonge Ruzik this week as he's on a well-deserved vacation in Mexico. In fact, I think he's almost en route at this point. But how are you, compa? The original duo is back together for this week, at least. That's right, Peter. We finally have new friendlies announced for September officially amongst a lot of speculation. So that is great to see. Uh, new information has resurfaced on CSA's deal with CSB. Toronto FC making a huge splash. CPL going viral for the wrong reasons. Finally, the women are off to the semifinals of the CONCAF W Championship. So, uh, again, a very loaded episode while our friend and Cuico uh, is in Monterey, Mexico. <laughs> uh, we will also probably hear more about your uh, commentating exploits when we get to the women's section later in the show. But before we dive into that, plus everything else that Thomas just dropped there, a reminder to everybody to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss any episodes. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, please leave us a rating and drop a review on Apple while you're at it to let us know how we're doing and maybe how we can improve the show as well. And of course, we were waiting on the CSA to announce the Time Friendlies before we posted this week's episode. And they did so on Wednesday morning. So this is why it's being posted later on. Canada will face Qatar on September 23rd and Uruguay on September 27th. Both games will be played in Vienna, Austria. Peter, what are your thoughts on landing both opponents? You can argue that the Federation needed positive PR as much as the team needed a meaningful opponent. That's absolutely true. If the CSA whiffed on this, Thomas especially after all the PR nightmares they've experienced since May, the latter of which we're going to get into in a bit here, I don't think they could come back from that when it came to getting the fans' trust back. Now, I'm sure it's going to take a lot to be able to fully win them back, especially after what's transpired these last two months, but this is a step in the right direction. Because if they didn't get this done, then you start to ask, is John Herbman going to get fed up to the point where he starts entertaining this outside interest? Or will the players be ill-prepared for the World Cup and will it hinder their performance leading to what could be an embarrassing showing for the team at their first World Cup in 36 years? Luckily, they managed to get not one, but two World Cup-bound opponents, which includes a top-tier opponent at that. I know Uruguay hasn't made it past the quarterfinals in a while, but they're a regular participant with genuine balance across the team and world-class players. And listen, don't sleep on Qatar either. They do play some attractive football, as we'll find out when that game is played in a couple months' time. Yeah, this is absolutely great for Canada. Probably the best opponents that Canada has ever gotten. Uh, wow, I can't even remember when because well, since Argentina, no, pre twenty ten, that probably would be the last time they got an opponent of this level. Probably yes, and the last time they were in Europe was in twenty seventeen. <laughs> yeah, like they, they didn't really you know manage to get anything meaningful there. No, I mean we, we saw the reports of Canada securing a top fifty nation. Uh, we reported on this very show uh, that Canada was close to securing. Um, friendly with a top five South American nation. Yes, that was Uruguay, and they were actually scheduled to be playing in Barcelona, but the game got moved to Austria, I was told. Again, we couldn't make it public, of course, you know, protecting the source and whatnot, but again, great to see. I think, uh, like you mentioned, for all those reasons, Peter, Uruguay, very solid opponent. 
and Qatar. I actually heard Qatar, but I wasn't sure. Again, I wasn't sure just because there's missing translation. I wasn't sure if they were going to, if Qatar was the venue, because I knew that Qatar, they want to use it for like a lot of uh, neutral site venues, you know, to test out right. the stadiums and whatnot. Uh, but no, I think on the sporting side, Qatar, solid side, one of the best in, in, the, in that Asian confederation. And I know a lot of people, hopefully we don't, there's not a lot of backlash from fans because at the end of the day, guys, Canada are going to the World Cup and they're comfortable going to a country like Qatar or anybody is comfortable going to Qatar. Either you're all in or you're not. I mean, what's what's happening in Qatar is, is just horrific with the uh, with the deaths. But at the end of the day, either either you fully accept it or you don't. Is the way I see it. And Canada soccer received a lot of backlash from Iran, and I know some fans might not be happy with Qatar. But in the end, I mean, all things considered, this is a this is a win for Canada. The difference with I think Qatar and Iran is the. Canadian government does have good diplomatic relations with Qatar. You wonder if, like, let's say they had the friendly somewhere in Canada, would there be a similar pushback from the government if Qatar was coming here? But the fact this is being played in Europe means it's outside their jurisdiction. They can't really do anything. And, you know, everything you said is true. But again, as we discussed when the whole Iran debacle happened, you're going to be facing teams who's not exactly squeaky clean, right, in terms of their country's behavior, right? And that has no reflection on the national team that represents them, right? And in modern-day society, you can't avoid it. And look, there is uh, still one more friendly to be announced. This is according to Victor Montaglani. When the venues for the for the 2026 World Cup, we're getting uh, officially confirmed in New York. Um, Montagland gave an interview to Cushion Jack in One Soccer's YouTube channel, and he said that Canada were going to be playing or planning to play one more friendly ahead of the World Cup in Qatar. But yeah, no, I think these two opponents, it's very, very solid. Now, Peter, tactically or otherwise, how do these teams help Canada in terms of preparation for their World Cup opponent? Uruguay will be preparation honestly, for both Belgium and Croatia in a way, because they have the attacking players from Darwin Nunez to Maxi Gomez to even Edinson Cavani or Luis Suarez, if they can figure out their club situations, they're still going to be very lethal if they can make that World Cup squad. Um, And they can trouble Canada like Belgium will in that regard. And don't sleep on Georgian de Arrascaeta as well. He might play in Brazil, but he's a sublime playmaker from that wing, likes to kind of drift inside and dictate the game that way. Um, they also like to play 4-3-3, as Croatia often did in the past, and they reverted back to that during Nations League. And it's usually spearheaded by that midfield trio, whether it's Fede Valverde or Matias Vecino, Lucas Torreira, Rodrigo Bentancur, even Manuel Ugarte. They're all quality midfielders. So that'll be Croatian preparation in a way, just having to deal with those midfield trios. And then Uruguay, as we've come to find out over the years, Thomas, watching them in South America, they're rock solid at the back and they're defensively disciplined. So they'll be a stern test in in possession and out of possession as well. And then Qatar likes to keep the ball and methodically break down opponents with possession. Their issue, at least when they've played outside their region, is composure in front of goal. That killed them at Copa America in 2019, at the Gold Cup last year. They were stiff tests for a few teams in either tournament. They just couldn't finish their chances, and that's what it ultimately cost them. 
Now let's move on to some off-the-pitch drama involving the CSA. TSN posted a story uh, from uh, Rick Westhead about Canada soccer and its lack of transparency. The report mentions specific incidents where the Federation, including President Nick Pontus, failed to disclose uh, pertinent information. Uh, Peter, there are so many takeaways from the reports. You know, you look at the quotes and, and it's, it's a very lengthy one. Uh, what, what stands out to you uh, the most? Oh, there is a lot. Um, and I think it's not going to differ too much from what everybody else took away from it. Because to us or anyone else listening, you've been a fervent supporter of Canadian soccer or involved in Canadian soccer for many years. So the general lack of transparency isn't news to anybody. As I said when the labor dispute kicked off in early June, Thomas... This is simply big news because Canadian soccer is now at the forefront of the general public, at least more than what it was in previous years due to the men qualifying for the World Cup. As for the report itself, I think what really stood out to me was finally getting the details on the CSB deal. And we got little bits of info based on the previous reporting we saw when the deal was struck in what late 2018 early 2019 we knew that csb which is made up of cpl's owners of course led by scott mitchell was paying the federation in exchange for perks like broadcasting revenues and sponsorship revenues which are supposedly going towards the cpl at least according to westhead and what we didn't know though were the exact figures or details But now we have confirmation that the CSA gets $3 million per year, but that has grown incrementally and will continue to grow incrementally until the end of the deal, which will peak at $3.5 million for that final year in 2027 or 2028, I believe it is. The CSB can extend that deal for another 10 years, and if it does, and I can't see it going any other way, Thomas, it must pay Canada Soccer at least $4 million per year for the next 10 years. Um, And of course, that can continue to grow incrementally, just like this current deal is. But I think what's really shocking about this whole thing is that it's one thing for CSB to get the broadcasting revenue, because that is a major stream for the Federation and all federations, really, across the world. But to also get the sponsorship revenue, which, as West had pointed out, includes the recent CIBC deal, which might be worth up to $5 million per year, that's 20% of the CSA's budget as it stands, Thomas. Like, that's a lot of money. To be getting that on top of the broadcasting, you then realize no wonder why the prize money from the World Cup is such a contentious issue, because it's the only guaranteed money the CSA is getting without CSB taking at least a chunk of it, if not all of it. We all thought in early June when the labor dispute happened that Stephen Reed, who was Nick Bontis' predecessor as CSA president, and Victor Montaliani, both of whom who signed off on it and or helped start CSB respectively were the culpable parties. But as it turns out, Bontis might be significantly at fault here because even though 
Former board member Ryan Feckett, who was quoted in this story, stated that the board recognized how poor that deal was and wanted some questions answered before approving it. Bontus went ahead and gave the board's approval anyways, even though that just wasn't the case because the board said the agreement was only approved subject to being provided details about CSB's finances and ensuring that Canada Soccer had representation on CSB's board. Those conditions were not met, at least according to the board members. Plus, only $1.2 million of the 2020 payment was paid due to COVID-19. And as we know with the Media Pro League on debacle, the league was able to sever that deal after Media Pro rocked, walked away because League on refused to budge. So there are two potential avenues to break this contract, but I emphasize the word potential here because if those possibilities have been there for four years, then why not do it? And I think the answers are the board did technically approve the deal because Bonta said they did, even though Feckett claims they didn't. So maybe a lawyer listening to this can confirm what I'm thinking, but that sounds pretty binding to me because if the board approves, then that's it, right? It doesn't matter whether some board members, you know, disapproved and whatnot. And some of these people aren't even on the board anymore. So I guess it doesn't matter. And then second, CSB would also have to be willing to walk away from the deal over the outstanding payment from 2020. And the reason why that's pertinent is MediaPro and Liga wanted to walk away from it together. It was mutual, which is the key difference here. Plus, there's the matter of the National Training Center in Vaughan, how the Canadian women's national team coaching hiring was conducted from Rianne Wilkinson asking about what the Federation paid the male women's national team coaches and the wage allocation for assistant coaches to hiring Priestman without the board's approval to the you know, lack of transparency on how the own the podium money was allocated, which was only supposed to be towards the women. Uh, everywhere you look, there's just so much damning info and it upsets me, Thomas. And, and why? Because from top to bottom, Canadian soccer is an old boys club at the core, and this has been affecting me for years specifically because when I was playing locally in Vancouver, I actually changed local clubs because my previous local club was just so you know, political and clicky and just shady in how they selected teams and whatnot that Myself and my dad just got frustrated, so we left and went to another club where I would have a better opportunity to play at a higher level and where things were a little more clear. So whether it's at the grassroots level, all the way up to the board of directors at Canada Soccer and everyone in between, it's just so upsetting to see that this can influence sport because I'm sure there are some very good people who want sporting success for the sport in this country, but inevitably in any aspect of life, whether it's business, whether it's sports, what have you, you're eventually going to have to compromise some of your morals to get ahead. And that's just the reality of the situation, but you just hate to see it get to this level with something that we so dearly love. I don't know any federation in the world that gives away their marketing rights entirely, like Canada Soccer has done. U.S. Soccer mm. did do it up until about a year or two ago with some Soccer United marketing. Well, he here's the thing. I was able to find out information that Canada Soccer, they're very bad in business. What do I mean by this? I'll explain. They had Gatorade as a sponsor for the longest time without receiving a dime from Gatorade. That is bizarre to me because you're only doing it from an optics point of view. And then the other thing is too that 
Peter, you bring up all those crazy numbers with the extension of the 10-year contract that can be renewed. I didn't mean looking at here that, you know, that extension even could increase from, from 3.5 to 4 million from 2028 to 2037. The unfortunate part here is that it's going to be very difficult to renegotiate. And Canada Soccer and CSB are in a marriage that is just impossible, not impossible, but very unlikely to just break up at this point. Pretty impossible. Um, look at look at it this way. I mean, Canada Soccer, don't get me wrong, Canada Soccer is still getting money from CSB, but the wages are just not there. And the, out of the whole story, out of everything that stands out to me is the part where Nick Bontis goes and tells one of his board members they couldn't send the recording of the private meeting they had without them That's because right. of equipment issues. Yeah. No, it, honestly, it's um, it's terrible. You hear these kind of things at, in South America, but the whole thing about if it wasn't for TSN now reporting the story, wouldn't even know the, the insights of what's really going on. What's the point of having a board if you're not even going to respect their, their their wishes? Can you seriously tell me that guys like Steve Reed, who were in charge before, if they were just receiving orders from someone at the top, because I've also heard in the past that it's not always the president making the decisions. Oh, of course not. Which to me, which to me shocks me. He, even at the CPL level, I've heard that Commissioner Klanik uh, and he wasn't calling all the shots. In fact, he not. wasn't calling more shots, which you know is is a very uneasy thing to to read into because in a way that's kind of your figurehead. But then the way that it's it's structured and you know being a volunteer position. And now you're able to find out, like, from the complaint of, of the players asking, you know, from the players saying in the letter that executives are taking vacation. And then I'm able to find out that one Canada soccer official actually went on vacation and then didn't even consult anybody and then build it back. Like, this is just ridiculous. Like, they, there's just way too much dirt here to really the lack of professionalism by Canada soccer. But continuing with the questions, because there are so many. Ariane. Uh, what does the report tell us about the CSA, Toronto Maple FC? What's the end game after Westhead reports? Seems like a civil war within CSA is the only way to move forward. Uh, Dan Clark, how can Canada soccer be fixed? Uh, the whole organization lacks professionalism and seems to act in bad faith. And finally, Ariane, uh, do you think after this article, Bontis should resign as the report claims that Bontis didn't get the board's permission to move on with many plans such as the CSB deal? I'll start with the last one because that's probably the easiest to answer. And listen, this is just based on what one former board member said, right? So so we have to take all of this with a grain of salt, of course. Like I'm just trying to be fair here. But if that is true, and if what Bontis did turns out to be proven by multiple sources, then that is grounds for a resignation. But if that is indeed proven, yeah, then he should absolutely resign. Of, of course he should. That That's absolutely poor. Will he? I highly doubt it, but he certainly should if, if that is indeed the case. As for, you know, just, just what's the end game and, and how can Canada soccer be fixed? To be honest with you guys, I don't know. Because like I said, this was happening at my local club. And what Thomas said in terms of like, oh, the president doesn't always call the shots. That was the case at my former local club too. It wasn't just the president. It was everybody underneath him as well, kind of controlling things and pulling the strings and whatnot. This is a, a very deep issue. And until everything from top, now it starts at the top and then eventually rots all the way to the bottom, right? But until you can get people in there who 
actually give a shit about the sporting success of soccer in this country, who actually have the growth of the game at the center of all of their motivations and all of their plans, and who are transparent, which is an issue all over the world when it comes to politics, right? And that's what people hate about politicians, is that they're not transparent, they're not honest, they always try to bend the truth and whatnot. You need all of that in order to fix Canada soccer. And it's going to take a very, very long time for that to come to fruition, unfortunately. I understand that Canada soccer is is, is a public entity. They receive uh, funding from the government, and that's kind of the key word here, public. And I understand that CSP is private and, and they can do whatever they want and whatnot to a certain extent, of course. But what makes me the most sad about this whole thing, Peter, is that the most powerful people in Canadian soccer on the CSB side don't even like soccer. The people that are literally making the decisions, the big, big decisions, they don't even care about the sport. They're, they're, they're not soccer guys. You know, they're just they're just CFL sports guys. Well, you know, and they, that's why, Thomas, that's guys. why Canada soccer wanted some of their board members on CSB's board, right? Now, whether they were actual, you know, soccer at their core guys would have remained to be seen. But at the very least, you have some people who have some sort of soccer experience on that board, right? For sure. But you look at, for example, the the, the thing is, this is a four-way, no, no, not even four-way. This is a five-way, this is a five-way war. The men's, the women's, the federation, CSB, you can include one soccer in there, sure, and then you can include even the CPL. For example, you look at someone like Josh Simpson, you know, president of uh, Pacific FC. He says, you know, he tweets out when this thing happened. Just, I'm just using him as an example, guys. There's many other people that came out when the whole CSB thing came down. So, you know, picking sides, essentially. I'm just picking up uh, what Josh Simpson said. CSB was created, you know, to create an economy uh, for the Canadian game in the Canadian soccer industry. And look, don't get me wrong. I mean, before CPL and, and CSB, there really wasn't a Canadian soccer economy. Like the economy didn't really exist, like created jobs. But there is just something to be said when they say all like, we're investing, you know, we should get the, we should get the cream of the crops. We should get the profits. They're the ones that are investing in this game. And yes, well, that may be true on the CPL level, you know, a lot of these guys wouldn't be actually 90% of them wouldn't be professionals without the CPL for the national team. I find it impossible that you can have the same deal with the national team players, just because I think the national team players deserve much more respect than the CPL. I'm not saying the CPL players don't respect as much. They're just two different components. And the CSB sort of puts the two things under the same umbrella in the same terms. You know what I mean? Like they, Yes, the CPL clubs pay uh, CPL players a certain amount for the salary, but to not include uh, Canada soccer from the very beginning, like I think the women's national team, you know, as, as much as how bad they've been treated, I feel like they could have maybe done a bit more to alert the men to, hey, you should get legal counsel from early on because the women have had legal counsel for what, a couple of years now, no? For a while, at least, since at least the start of their negotiations with the Federation. I've heard stories, you know, of Argentinian executives, you know, finding into a board, you know, getting with the AFA, the, the clubs, everybody. And even they, like, they come to a halt. They sit down in a room for one month. They have, like, they strike. They have right. strikes. Right. For, for several weeks while negotiations are ongoing. 
there was nothing of this, you know, in a way, this is kind of like a mini protest, but it's not an actual, I think the best way to do it is kind of like do like a, have a strike where renegotiation, renegotiations have to happen. I mean, the, there's no other way to put it. Canada soccer says kind of like, okay, we have to renegotiate like they do in Argentina and other countries where, you know, you have an executive, you have club members, you have different people sitting at the table together and they say, okay, we need to move forward. Uh, but the, the, the thing with Canada is either you're in Toronto or you're in Vancouver or you're here or you're there, right? Other countries do it differently. Yeah, it's, you know what, man, the, the whole thing, as I said, from top to bottom is just a mess. Look at the BC soccer debacle, right? And, and how they don't have proportional representation when it comes to the voting. And it, it's just so, so damning. And it's so disappointing to see it. And I guess as a follow-up to that very long rant I had off the top, and I apologize to the listeners for that. I, I just get very passionate when I talk about these things. But Wu-Tang Clan taught us that cash rules everything around us. And I think we're finding out that that is also the case in Canadian soccer specifically. Tony from Toronto, with all the new information coming to light, it appears that the CSA and CSB are more intertwined than we once thought. It appears one entity facilitates the federation while the other is for profit. Uh, sentiment generally when there is a lack of transparency. Is there even a path forward given how intertwined the two entities are? Does the governance allow this much unilateral power uh, to decision makers to enable such actions to be made out as outlined in the article? The, I think the question here is, can the CSB and CSA really be more independent? I, I think they, they are to a certain extent, but the way it looks like to me is this. Bontis had a friend in CSB or several friends, quote unquote, old boys club. Okay, I'll make you a favor and we'll wrap the steel because we, you know, it benefits both of us. That's the way it looks like to me. Not just Bontis, but a several Cochran. You can put a couple of people like, that's what that's how business is really done. That's how you know corruption allegations really begin. Where why am I doing business with this person specifically? Or why not A, B, and C, right? But at the same time, you can kind of say, what options does Canada Soccer have? Who else could they negotiate it with? See, and that's why when I look at the quotes from these current and former board members, I I, I couldn't uh, remember off the top of my head who is who, but when they talk about how, and, and I'm quoting them directly, how shit that deal was at the time, then, you know, are they saying this now because it hasn't aged well? Like if, if the Canadian men did not qualify for the world cup, would you still be saying this? If the Canadian women didn't win gold in Tokyo, would you still be saying this? That is the one question I have here, right? Because at the time, I can say it, and I've also been on the radio and said this, so you can even go back and listen to those interviews. I've been consistent with this the whole time. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but at the time, and I think I said it on this podcast as well in early June, Thomas, I thought, you know what? The CSA's kind of backed into a corner here. They need money coming in. And then as we saw the pandemic happen, so all the more reason for that to happen because there were no games. And as we know, gate revenue is a major driver for them too. They need someone to come in here because TSN and Sportsnet weren't going to. In terms of paying for the broadcast rights, in fact, Canada Soccer was paying them before to broadcast those games. So they needed someone to come in and and bring in money. And I think Victor Montaliani realized that, which is why CSB's formation happened. If you're in business, Thomas, you're not going to make a deal 
unless there's a sweetener in it for you, right? That there has to be a major motivation for you to get into it, right? And so if the CPL owners were going to buy into these clubs in the CPL and start a CPL club for, you know, whatever it was, $1.5, $2 million. Obviously those uh, expansion fees have grown over the last few years, but are they going to see a return on their money? Are they going to see profit? How are they going to see profit? And that is one of the ways of doing it, right? Because that's how MLS was able to, to build itself up and how U.S. soccer was able to build itself up was through Soccer United Marketing. At the time, you can say, yeah, I, I guess they really have no choice. I feel like with hindsight being what it is, a very smart business person could look at that deal and say, well, surely there's something else out there. Surely with the the, the talent we have coming through, right? Because Davies and David were kind of making waves at that point, right? That maybe there's something that we can get that's better that doesn't back us into a corner. But as for the the question from Tony, I don't think there's a way to to make them independent. I, I think they're they're joined at the hip at this point because why would either one of the, I mean, sure, the CSA could walk away from the deal or want to walk away from the deal, but CSB has to do the same thing. And why the hell would they do that? They have an amazing deal for themselves. CSA just quite frankly bad bad in business. And number two, they lost their negotiating power. They had yeah. no leverage. Yeah, CSB came in. Hey, guy, you know what? Don't worry about the marketing side. Don't worry about the business side. We'll manage everything. You don't have to worry about anything. Canada Soccer, we don't even have we don't even have a marketing person on staff. An entire organization is going to take care of that. You know, so they, they lost their leverage. They lost their marketing power. Here's the other thing too. You bring up why is this coming to like now? Even the most successful sports out there in every country, hockey is the most popular sport in this country. It took a while for even these kind of stories in Hockey Canada to come to light. That's correct. Think about it. And that's the number one sport in Canada. So even the most successful sports in this country take a while for these kind of run stories, you know, from the core to come to light, you know, sexual harassment claims, you know, abusement in, in junior hockey to, to male players and whatnot, like just so much stuff. And I think with the success comes again, the dark side, which we're, which we're discussing. And you bring up the, the whole rights holder deal. Guys, take take my word for what you will. Doing an internship with One Soccer and obviously doing commentary for them on the side. So you can take my biased opinion for what you will. But I have heard that Canada Soccer would rather, would rather uh, again, from the optics point of view, have Gatorade as a sponsor and not get anything back. Literally uh, have the game on for free on TSN and just have TSN stream it for free, not get anything back, even though if, if that happened, they should. And just have as many people watch it without any sort of compensation. And I don't think that's just how business works anywhere in the world. Wsoccer.ca seems like the entire formation of CSB and Montaglani's three long-term goals revolved around the men's program. Uh, how is the gender inequitable plan allowed to move forward with no planning for the woman? I think the simple answer is, and I think everybody would probably be able to glean this, I don't think they care too much about the women's program, to be honest with you. And I think the reason for that is the majority of the money, at least, is in the men's game. The men qualifying for the World Cup brings in more prize money from FIFA. It brings in more sponsors. It brings in a, a lot of other revenue streams, right? That being said, the women are your most successful national team program, bar none. 
and you're telling me that without that with proper marketing and and with the right strategy behind it, you can't give them a fair deal similar to what the U.S. women are getting. And what I mean by that is the U.S. women are stars. The U.S. women's national team is massive across the world. The Canadian women could have been in the same sort of stratosphere. In fact, they kind of are already getting there just after winning a gold medal in Tokyo, right? Like it just took that one accomplishment and now they're already growing exponentially, right? So they did the women a disservice, absolutely. And that is on Montaliani, that's on the board, that's on Canada Soccer for doing that because they deserve a lot more respect than that. Now from Ariane, as much hate as there is with the CSV, shouldn't there be more credit for CSV uh, as they are investing in the game properly, for example, owning League One Canada, uh, when other organizations want to, like TSN and Sportsnet. As well, uh, my good friend David Anthony, uh, with all bad press that CSB is getting, is not fair to question the viability of the CPL uh, without them. Uh, Very fair, Jumping back actually. to uh, Josh Simpson's comments, there is credit to be had, absolutely. The, the piece of the pies are just not square. No, they're not. But that's not CSB's fault. Like, they recognize an opportunity and they took it. That's really good business, right? You can say whatever you want about CSB. You can say whatever you want about the people behind it. Really good business and very smart of them to do what they did. And it's absolutely fair to question the viability of the CPL without CSB because they're the ones who put up the money to start the teams. They're the ones who are financing the league and financing the teams and got it its broadcast deal and is, you know, putting it in the public eye. Now we can talk about whether that's the right platform for it and whatnot, but they have put up and spoken with actions, right? So you can't criticize them in that regard. The only thing you can really ask is, is all the money they're getting from broadcasting revenues, from sponsorship revenues that could be earmarked for Canada soccer, is it actually going towards the CPL or is it lining the pockets of the owners in other ways, right? And I think that's a more than fair ask. But when it comes to these questions specifically, I think when it comes to CSB and what they've done for the CPL, that's absolutely fair and that the CPL probably, would, in fact, it would not be where it is right now without the people behind CSB and or the owners that are running these teams. And you look at the FC Edmonton example. Bare bones, bare bones, yes. But the league is literally funding uh, FC Edmonton just to keep it alive. Correct. Just to have eight teams, have the odd, the odd amount of number of teams, you know, to make the schedule work. I've heard even from, you know, different sources that if uh, CPL teams are posting losses, then it would be covered, you know, under someone like Bob Young. Uh, which is a good thing to see because at first I was very worried that the CPL had an expiration date, but finding out this information that, you know, someone like Young would cover the losses of the CPL teams and the league, if there are any, uh, seems that this league is, is going to be, you know, in it forever. Final question from Arion on the TSN report on Canada soccer that was uh, released Tuesday morning uh, from Arion. Uh, did the Canada team get a lawyer uh, yet? No, they haven't. And that is something that has gone very much under the radar um, because, man, the, the longer this festers, the worse it gets for the men. 
they need legal representation desperately. I don't know what the holdup is. It could be something to do with how the law firm would be compensated. I don't know, but they have to get this done, man. They absolutely do. Because the, the longer this, this lingers, the worse it is for them. And the worse it is for the Federation too, because you don't want this influencing the the momentum going towards the World Cup. Let's move on again to the another edition of the Canucks Abroad Mailbag. Uh, tons of questions to get into involving Canadian players overseas and their futures this week. Full-time FC, are there any news or rumors around Richie Larea's future? Uh, with the signing of Neko Williams, do you see Larea staying at Forest for cup matches and to give rotation and flexibility uh, for Williams as he's very young? Uh, very interesting for Larea, Arion, uh, what's Larea's uh, situation at Forest? And by the looks of his Instagram, he looks like he's fighting for a place in the squad instead of asking for a loan move. That doesn't really say anything because it's still very early in preseason and loans don't tend to formulate until not for another couple of weeks usually. Once teams kind of gauge who is maybe in the squad picture, who isn't. But... It's a fair question to ask when it comes to Nika Williams, um, because he is still very raw and inexperienced. So maybe having, in terms of age at least, a more experienced backup isn't the worst thing. And in Larea's case, it, it might not hurt either. Um, but I still think a loan happens. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence, Thomas, that... Wherever we saw Kyle Laren linked, whether that was to Olympiacos or or wherever else, we also saw Larea linked there because they share an agent, right? And in the case of Olympiacos, their owner is Nottingham Forest's owner. So now that Laren has gone to Club Bruges, I wonder if Larea ends up going there on loan because they have an opening on the right side. Um, Laren's already there, so they share an agent. There's a relationship already established. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, I think. But I do think it's still going towards a loan at this point. You never know, right? Injuries can happen. Um, players can underperform in preseason, which leads to him staying. But that's where I would lean right now. The championship, 46 matches. I mean, that's that's a really good opportunity to get one full season under your belt in England, um, as opposed to, you know, playing, what, eight, nine Premier League games, maybe even just 10, 12 games all in, all in all competitions, maybe even less than that, all coming as a sub, maybe getting the odd uh, start here and there. I'm not sure if it was an English newspaper that came out and, and said that, that the club was open to get to receive offers from Larea or Larea, I should say, or if it was the club themselves in a press conference that the head coach said that we're, we're ready to, to receive offers uh, for Larea. Uh, no, so it was in The Athletic that said that he was made available for loan. So very clearly the club is leaning more towards sending him out on loan because they do have another right back in the squad um, who can back up Nico Williams if needed. Um, and I think the the reason why they're willing to loan him out is Larea is a Canadian international. He needs the minutes. And he's at that age where, you know, he's at, he's 27, right? Like, it's not like he's a young player. He needs to be playing. Like, it's absolutely pertinent for him to be getting minutes. So I think that's why they are trying to get him another club on loan, just to ensure that he doesn't just rot on the bench, basically. That settles that. Uh, Mao, I talked to Maori. Uh, Jonathan David, are we feeling a stay at Lille now that some of the other rumors have seemingly dried up? 
I think so. Yeah, because I can't see anybody paying 50 million euros plus for David as it stands. And I've said this for multiple weeks on the show now. Uh, And the simple reason why is the clubs who can afford that fee have either already signed someone or probably don't feel confident in David's track record right now. Because we can make all the excuses we want about why he struggled when he first got to Lille and then exploded in the second half of his first season, and then why he started this past season so well, and then the form went off a cliff, right? And what I'll say is this. Clubs at that level, you know, whether it's Chelsea, whether it's it's Bayern Munich or whoever was linked to him, there are no excuses for struggles at, at that club, right? And the fact of the matter is, the same issues were present at Lille when he was doing very, very well in the opening months of the season, but no one really said anything about that. It wasn't until the goals dried up and the performances, the poor performances, that is, started to pile up when everyone was like, oh, well, it's because of Gorvanek, it's because of, um, you know, the, the, the team is underperforming. They gave all these reasons, right? And the fact of the matter was, even when the team was at its worst, David still had opportunities to break out of that slump and didn't take them. And big clubs will look at that. They'll see that he has had two very contrasting halves in either season he's had at Lille and think, ah, do we really want to pay 50 million euros for a striker who so far has been inconsistent? I'm not so sure. So that's why another a se- another season at Lille is important for him under a coach as tactically flexible and as respected as Paolo Fonseca because maybe he can build up that reputation and then come next summer when he'll be a little more affordable will be the time for him to make that jump. Plus, he'll be 23 years old, still lots of time for him to make an impact in Europe. Question from Ariane, uh, Theo Corvenu. And could he make a breakthrough with Wolves? Uh, if he does, does he get minutes off the bench in the Prem? Would that be enough to justify a spot at the World Cup? Voltam uh, FC, do you guys see Corbin staying at Wolves and fighting for a place inside, especially with Trincao uh, leaving the club because it gives Corbin a spot to fight for? Uh, would be great to see another Canadian in the Premier League. Uh, well, yes, his loan has um, has ended. He's, he's back at Wolves. Uh, uh, now, Peter, I believe you have uh, an update uh, on Corvenu's uh, situation. Yes, I do. Um, so there is a club in the Segunda. It's Levante. They are looking at him. Now, I'm not saying they're going to bring him in on loan, but they are tracking him at the moment. And they just got relegated from La Liga. They have the talent to be able to go straight back up, but they are looking for a couple of reinforcements, specifically in the attack, and he's apparently one of the options they're looking at. So there are loan options for Corbinu if Wolves decide to send him out. Um, it, it's possible that he could stick around, but they didn't have many options a year or two ago, and they still sent him out on loan. So I feel like that's where this is probably still going as well, unless he absolutely kills it in preseason and proves without a shadow of a doubt that he deserves to stay. For me, Corbin is more of a player that needs a couple of loans, you know, kind of, you know, to grind it out the second divisions and kind of a good first division in Europe to kind of, all right, now he's ready. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. At least at the very lead, be rotational. But again, exciting news, exciting news broken by our insider, Peter Galindo, as he will have to uh, learn Spanish, uh, Corbin, that is, if he ends up at Levante. Uh, Vince Alvarado, uh, is it safe to assume uh, based on the European season, that guys like Hutchinson and Vittoria uh, would instead retire from Canada after the 2023 Gold Cup. Uh, also, is winning that tournament the bare minimum? Uh, 
does it feel like the team is strong enough to go all the way? I'm going to quote uh, our good colleague and friend, AGR, who isn't here today. What he said still resonates uh, with me. I'm sure it does with you, Peter. The whole thing about ask, Herman asking these guys like Victoria and Hutchinson to stay six more months. Uh, hey, there's, a, there's two trophies on the line, Nations League and, and Gold Cup. I think that's more than enough. And then after that, I think, yeah, then I think they'll call it a day, huh? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I stand with that opinion. Um, but again, it all depends on what they want to do, right? Like they might think, ah, you know what? Like going to a World Cup is 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 good enough for me. I don't know if I really have six months left in me. Like it all depends, right? Now, Victoria has a club, as does Hutchinson. So at least they'll come into that summer relatively fresh, right? Having just come off a European season. So I guess the chance is there. But that's another year older. That's more miles on their legs, flying across the Atlantic, back and forth, back and forth, trying to play for Canada. Maybe they might think, you know what? I've I've put in my my years. I had a fantastic storybook ending, going to a World Cup for the first time. That might be it for me. But as I said last week, Thomas wouldn't put it past Herdman to convince these guys to stick around for another six months. See, the thing is, you bring up something really interesting, and I think it has to do with the psychology of the players. Because let's say Canada does make it to the round of 16. Belgium finishes first for whatever reason. Croatia bottles it and Canada gets to the round of 16. They eliminate it, but still, I mean, knockout stage. Canada would be on a high. The players' mentality would be on a high. Wow, not only first World Cup in 36 years, but we made it to the knockout stage. They come back to Canada as heroes. But then I also know how good Herman is to, uh, to you know, kind of change, uh, you know, kind of the half, uh, the um, the the glass half empty, half full uh, mythology, right? Like I could imagine Canada, you know, picking up one draw, two losses against Belgium and Croatia, and then somehow, some way, it still leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. But Canada is able to compete against Belgium and Croatia, and and Herman still manages to convince those guys. I mean, I think mm. it has to do with both, no? Because like I think one has to said, but but if Canada completely didn't do well at the World Cup, then I think someone like Hutchinson and Victoria might be like. Well, you know, if that's if this is our, you know, maximum potential and we weren't able to compete at the maximum level, then why would I want to stick around for a competition where we already proved that we're the best? But yeah. again, I mean, a trophy is a trophy, you know, kind of. Yeah, you know, and again, like it, it depends on the player, right? Maybe that competitive fire and, and wanting to to go out on an even bigger high in terms of lifting a trophy, right? And and finally breaking through that glass ceiling is enough to keep them around. It would be nice. It would be nice to see Hutchinson lifting a trophy and then say goodbye to yep. international soccer, especially how it ended in 2019. That's right. But it's, well, you didn't end it. We, you know, on hiatus and then came back. Uh, Edward Honsing Wong, uh, now that it's been revealed that Halbuni could have ended up on a loan at the White Cups from Bremen, how big of an opportunity was missed uh, with the loan failing through or is he better off now at FC Magdeburg? Uh, yeah, this is an interview that um, Albuni uh, did with uh, Transfer Markets, uh, Manuel Veth, and he, he revealed that there, there was the opportunity to to play the Whitecaps. He also had an opportunity to play at TFC as well, TFC 2, that is. I, I think he's better off going to Magdeburg, to be honest, because who knows how many minutes you would have gotten in Vancouver, um, especially given that Vanny Sartini does like to rotate quite a bit. Um I do think he would have been a pretty decent fit at the right center back spot, but they have Florian Jungwertz there. They have Tristan Blackman there. Now they probably wouldn't have signed Blackman or possibly even Jungwertz if I think 
you know, Hal Booney had agreed to that loan, of course, but th- that would be the one thing I would ask. Plus, I think going to the two Bundesliga is a really good next step for him because it's a fast-paced league. It's a little more tactically advanced than MLS. And I think he was ready for that sort of a level anyways, because it was very clear to me, having seen his footage, he was far too good for the fourth tier of German football. Let's be completely honest. And he needed to make that jump. So I think where he is now is the best place for his development. Um, And quite frankly, I'm very excited to see what happens over the next season, because I think it could be a very big year for him if he can lock down some semi-regular minutes. And again, time is very valuable, Peter, because we've seen guys like Kenny Jalva they play in the third, fourth tier, and they and they and they uh, they stank themselves, right? Because mm-hmm. they're playing at that level. I'm not saying it's not a bad level; it's a good level. But when you play there, when you play in the lower leagues for too long, like Kanisha Alva, you kind of just get stuck at that level, right? Yeah. And he's doing it with a team where he might get opportunities, as he hinted in this interview, because obviously Magdeburg are a team that are coming from the third division to the second division. So we'll see what happens uh, with him. Fulham FC, uh, Pechile. Signing for Venezia is very exciting uh, for a young Canadian. Uh, but do you see him getting into the first team and starting matches? Will we see him in the Canemancy sooner than we think with the lack of quality in the midfield? And Ariane 5, with Pachilli moving to Venezia complete, do you think he has a chance to make the World Cup squad as we're thin in midfield as seen in the March window? It's funny, too, because this advanced really rapidly. Because I was hearing February, March, Pachilli was probably not going to stick around in Venezia. Now, I imagine them going down to Serie B probably changed their minds a little bit. Um, But he impressed a lot in the Primavera. So I suppose it's not too much of a shock. Now, he will have opportunities to get minutes at that level. The midfield is pretty loaded, however. I mean, predominantly by guys like Gianluca Busio and other U.S. internationals. So it might be tough to crack that. Um, Plus, I believe he will have aged out by the start of this upcoming season. But if they're signing him permanently, I'm sure they have minutes earmarked for him down in the second division of Italy. Um, And that's a great development. If he does play regularly, he can eventually crack the Canadian national team for sure, if he has very good form, of course. And he's the kind of player who I think, he's not quite box to box, I would say, but he is quite active defensively as well as kind of progressing the ball forward. The one improvement I think he really needs to make to to kind of take a step in his development is just seeing the game and reading the game a little quicker if that makes sense like I think there were times when he hesitated a little bit too much on the ball and then that kind of landed him in trouble because in Italy they emphasize tactics a lot right and I think there were times when players could kind of anticipate what he was going to do and then he struggled with that in in terms of like kind of I guess just not making snap decisions a lot sooner is the best way I would put it. So if he can make that improvement, then he can take a pretty decent step forward, I think. Um, Dovsa, any updates on Derek Cornelius? Not sure if he's staying in Greece or if he's a free agent. Uh, Well, according to Transfer Market, his contract is until December 31st, 2022. Correct. And uh, they do have the option to buy from the Whitecaps. Uh, So unless that's been changed should stay the same. It, yeah, that's correct. Fulton FC, with how good a form Dane Sinclair has shown in Minnesota, is there a chance we could soon uh, make him, see him make a move abroad, just like we saw with Matt Turner from U.S. Men's National Team? Dane Sinclair has been so good. I believe he definitely deserves a move. 
oh my god, I just cannot believe how US men's national team players just keep getting these fucking amazing moves. Like, cut the shit, man. Seriously, Matt Turner to Arsenal, like, you know, you see these moves and you just, US men's national team players playing for these big, big clubs. Uh, and you're just like, what the hell, man? It's like, because they have good agents, because, you know, a lot of owners in Europe are, are American. Yes, so that's a big one. It's, it's terrible. You know, it's terrible because Canadian players deserve this this much of a chance. Like, Well, the American owners are, is certainly a, a huge factor in that, right? Because who owns Arsenal? Stan Kroenke, right? And and Matt Turner going there, I'm sure, is, is not entirely unrelated. Uh, plus, they do have very good agents. And that's something that does help you a lot. Um, Dane Sinclair does deserve a move eventually abroad, especially if he keeps up this sort of a level. Um, Distribution-wise, he's still very shaky. But in a system where you don't need a ball-playing goalkeeper or a sweeper-keeper, I think he's fine. Um, He's a very good shot-stopper. And it amazes me someone so long is able to be that agile, getting to the ground as quickly as he does, and who can just make himself so big when he charges off his line. Those are two skills that you honestly can't teach, especially when you have his height. Um, so I think that he can definitely make the jump to Europe if if he continues on this trajectory. And that is the big caveat here is he had a breakthrough 2020, right? Then he lost the starter's job in 2021 for whatever reason that was. And then he's taken it back this year. So if he can keep it going, then he's going to be on the European radar very, very quickly, if he isn't already. And I believe he has a Canadian mother who, who has Scottish roots. Not sure if she has the passport or not, but I think that would that would really help uh, would. him a yep. lot. Uh, final question on the Canadians abroad mailback before we move to domestic matters. Uh, Ariane, five, uh, if Jefferson scores around five to six goals before the World Cup, does he deserve to be in the squad ahead of Cavallini? No, I don't think so. Um, and the reason for that is the way Cavallini's playing, I don't think he's going to lose his spot anyways. So to be completely honest, even if Jebison does end up killing it and, and, and doing super well to start the season – his time's going to have to wait because right now all the strikers are in form. Now, Ike Ugbo's club future is still very uncertain, so we'll have to see what happens with him. But as of right now, it's going to be very tough for any forward to crack that squad right now. Let's transition now to what was a busy week in the MLS with some of the news dropping shortly after we posted last week's episode. Uh, where else to begin besides Toronto FC? <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, I got to bring this up, but... Right as Peter was posting the episode, Toronto FC decided to go nuclear. Hated it. Hated it so uh, much. They traded Alejandro Pozuelo to Inter Miami in exchange for 150000 in jam, uh, conditional jam, uh, if certain performance bonuses are met, and a sell-on if Pozuelo is transferred in the future. Uh, that led to immediate reports of former Juventus winger and Italy international Federico Bernadeschi joining the club as a DP on a free transfer uh, TFC. And on top of that, uh, the club uh, and Carlos Sosado decided to uh, mutually terminate their contract. He is headed to Juarez. Uh, so that clears up a DP spot for the club. And the big one, uh, as the club acquired Canadian international Mark Anthony K. Um, he was traded for 775000 jam, a first uh, round draft pick for next year, an international roster spot, and Ralph Priso uh, reuniting under his former uh, manager, uh, Bob Bradley, uh, and returning to his former club as well. 
let's get to some listener questions on all of these uh, TFC moves. Uh, starting with Ariane 5, is the Kai move to TFC a good one for Kenneman T given chemistry? Uh, Chris talks, thoughts on the moves being made, still to be made. Thoughts, thoughts on the move that have been made and still to be made by TFC if they win Canadian Championship and qualify for CONCAF Champions League. Can they be a real threat slash favorite in CONCAF Champions League and MLS next season or too soon to tell? And finally, Justin Bostonberg, if the, if the Carlos Salcedo situation had been resolved earlier, would TFC have kept Pozuelo for the rest of the season? Well, on their chances in MLS and CCL next season, it is too early to tell because they still have to embed all those players into the side. I also don't think they're entirely done. Um, just in terms of maybe getting some of the players out of the club, into the club, etc. Because there's still some holes, I think, defensively. And in transition, they still give up way too many chances. So they got to work on that, I think, if they're going to be a threat in either competition. But the K signing does help in that regard because he is a quintessential box-to-box midfielder and that he's going to cover a lot of ground, be active defensively, progress the ball, and he played his best football under Bob Bradley at LAFC. So he can be that dynamic two-way threat as part of a double pivot or as part of a trio with Osorio and Bradley. However, Bob Bradley decides to go with it. The Salcedo-Pozuelo tie-in, I don't think that's entirely correct because As we saw before the season, there were rumors out there that TFC was trying to move Pozuelo, which I think is just them doing their due diligence in that he had less than a year left on his deal. He was already injury prone, and you could see that he wasn't going to fit entirely into Bradley's system, at least to get his best strengths out of him, right? So I don't think Salcedo's situation really had any influence on Pozuelo leaving. I think they were kind of trying to, to get something done one way or the other. But Salcedo leaving... I think certainly opens up a lot of opportunities. I think bringing him in was a terrible idea. Um, And I understand they kind of had to do it because in order to get rid of Soteldo, they had to bring in Salcedo, but he wasn't an upgrade to that defense. He cost them a DP spot and was earning more than a couple million dollars. It just didn't make a lot of sense sporting wise, as well as on the salary cap. So getting him out obviously frees up a lot of opportunities for that team. And I'm excited to see what they can do because now the flexibility is there. Can they build a proper roster and get back to the heights they were at from 2016 all the way to 2018, at least when it came to the Champions League? Looking good. It's looking good for TFC. And I believe uh, Salcedo also had some legal troubles as well in, in Mexico. So you kind of get that sort of outside the pitch uh, trouble dealt with. Toronto FC tied 2-2 uh, against uh, San Jose Earthquakes, a late one, a late uh, uh, draw that was at BMO Field, um, which should have been uh, Lorenzo Insigne's debut uh, that has obviously since been postponed to uh, July 23rd, um, as a lot of fans uh, await his arrival. Moving on to the other MLS teams, uh, CF Montreal also coughed off a lead but lost 2-1 to Sporting Kansas City on Saturday. Uh, Ariane, why is CF Montreal so inconsistent this season and what's with the lack of fans in Montreal with supporters groups walking out? Well, in terms of the inconsistency, um, that's just how they play, right? They are mid-table in most offensive and defensive metrics. The way they play allows them to control games, but when they get hit in transition they can be had. So you're going to see inconsistent results 
due to how they play. Um, and that's fine. Like they're still a solid playoff team, but whether they are a proper contender in the East, that might be a bit of a stretch, at least at this point. But with the fans, look, they're disenchanted with how the rebrand is gone. The club is making it very difficult for the supporters groups to, I think, have their full influence on the atmosphere. Like they banned pyro. They're not really working with the supporters groups like other clubs do. And so understandably, the supporters groups don't feel represented and they get frustrated with the club. And that's something that has to change from the club's point of view. And finally, the Vancouver Whitecaps continued the theme of surrounding leads as they lost 3-1 to Dane Sinclair's Minnesota United at BC Place on Friday. But Lucas Kelly did score. Should he be the go-to option for Vancouver up front? The fact he isn't already is kind of weird because him and Brian White are partnering each other. And you can see that that duo with Ryan Gall just doesn't work. And when one of them is out there... It is much more fluid. But right now, Cavallini's the informed striker. He is playing very, very well. He deserves to be the go-to option up front, 100%. And I don't think it's going to happen you know, every game, at least right now, just because of fixture congestion. But eventually, that should be the case. Over to CPL now, where Forge beat York United in the 9-5 derby at 2-0. Pacific ended FC Edmonton 3-2. Atletico Ottawa and Calvary settled for a 1-1 draw, and Valor edged HFX Wanderers 1-0. However, uh, Valor could have won by more if it wasn't for one of the most bizarre incidents we've ever seen in quite some time, one that went viral on social media, picking up over 12 million views, ending up on ESPN, uh, Bleacher Report, 433, uh, you name it. Absolutely bizarre, one of the weirdest things we'll ever see in history. Uh, Vincent Kieran, can you please explain what is going on here with a clip of the William Acum goal line clearance? Honestly, one of the most bizarre brain farts I think I've ever seen. And I think that's what this is, to be honest, because I, I honestly don't know what Akio was thinking here. Maybe he thought, oh, the goal, the, the ball's over the line. I'm just going to smash it in, into the net and, and he missed. But that might be a lesson to anybody who's in that situation. You know, just be sure first that the ball is over the line and that it is indeed a goal before you do anything because this went viral and understandably so because it is so wild that this happened. I honestly don't, I don't believe, um, obviously, Akio put out a statement saying that it was a miss on his end. I don't just, I don't just, I don't believe it. If it was a miss, he would have put his hands in his head and he didn't, right? You just had a brain for it. I mean, and that's okay. I tweeted yeah. it out, uh, and it's okay. You just you just go out there and just say that you had a brain for it, and that's all good. But to say to classify as a miss when there wasn't even a live reaction from him, I don't think he he realized it in the moment. But Arch Staten, uh, are we sleeping on Karifa Yao as a center back prospect? What is his ceiling in your opinion, and does he have any statistical weaknesses? I think we might be sleeping a little bit. I think his ceiling is decently high. Um, I know Alex and I have said that he could be a possible replacement for Steven Vittoria in the center of that back three, because I think he fits into that very well. He's good in the air. He's got a great long ball on him, to be honest. Quickness-wise, acceleration-wise, he might not be there, but that's fine if you're playing in that system. Uh, so as long as you mask those weaknesses, I think he can be a really, really good player going forward, 100%. Conrad Krausert, 
with Cavalry's transfers of Latouri and Peppel, are they going to struggle going forward on the pitch and in terms of U23 minutes? I know Asi will play to fulfill to fill some of that quota, but I'm worried about the future. Uh, well, the Peppel one isn't official yet. They kind of want to keep a Peppel um, sort of in secret with the media. They want to protect him from the media. I think they're waiting for something to be made official and Cavalry can do something with him officially and then he can be available to the media. But that's just from what I've heard at least. But looks like it is going to happen. Yeah, it will. Now, th- they do have, I believe they also have Skylar Rogers. Um, and they do have a pretty direct pipeline to Foothills. So I'm sure Tommy Wielden Jr. will bolster that squad with under 21 eligible players to make up for the lost minutes. Um, I, I don't think there should be too much concern here, but it's a fair question to bring up because if you lose those two guys, those are two guys who eat up a lot of minutes in that quota. So who's going to fill it in? It is understandable. Answer Dave. How active do you expect Campiel teams to be in the summer transfer window? Any names linked to Forge FC specifically? None that I've heard, but I'm sure there are going to be quite a few teams that are active in the window. Uh, York United always seems to be. And the fact that they're struggling right now probably means they're going to make one or two moves to bolster the team. Uh, Things are not going well there this season. Um, And I'm sure there are going to be the likes of, like, let's say, pretty much anybody who's in the race for a playoff spot right now, which is basically two-thirds of the league. They're going to try to do something to put themselves over the top, especially Cavalry, Valor. Anyone who's losing a key player or two is probably going to end up trying to make some sort of a, a big splash. What do you connect? How can it be that FC Hamilton doesn't have a home game from July 9th until August 28th? How does it make sense to have, have had six home games between April 10th to May 31st when Edmonton weather is suspect? Does any other CPL team have such a schedule? I mean, this was the case in, I believe it was 2019 as well. Like, the, the scheduling for Edmonton was just so weird in that a lot of the games were scheduled at times when the weather is just so inclement that, of course, there are not going to be a lot of fans turning up because who wants to sit through sleet and wind and, and all these other conditions, right? So it makes absolutely no sense why they would do that. I know they don't get big crowds anyways, but you're not helping yourself by not having more games in the summer when the weather is at least a little more stable and when people might actually want to be outside, even if the team isn't very successful or the team isn't making a lot of waves, it's at least something nice to do on a hot summer day. So I was able to find out that, you know, these kind of things, they're done for budget budget reasons. For example, FC Edmonton only flies out the day before the game, as opposed to every other team flies out the day before that. So the five consecutive or around their home games might have been for budget reasons, but 100%, I mean, the summer in Edmonton, I mean, I can tell you, I'm from Edmonton, I mean, who the hell wants to play soccer in April? Braden, uh, any idea on who the new FC Edmonton owner could be? Uh, well, according to Derek Martin, uh, who's actually part of the, of the board of directors at CPL, as well as HFX Wonders owner, he said that they've secured an owner to take on FC Edmonton. But according to them, this is not me, according to them, it's a done deal and should be announced in the next two months. Uh, but we'll just have to wait and see. And to wrap up, uh, what well, is a very long episode in the CONCACAF W Championship. Canada finished the group stage uh, with a 2 nothing win over Costa Rica on Monday night. They have won all three games thus far and will play in the semis versus Jamaica uh, on Thursday. Canada has already qualified for the 2023 Women's World Cup 
but need to win the final of the W Championship to advance to the 2024 Olympics. Otherwise, they'd be in the Olympic playoff if they finish second or third. Uh, what have you made of the tournament so far, and do they stun a chance of winning that final? Call me optimistic, I do. And the reason I say that is, in tournament settings under Bev Priestman, they have been able to lock it down defensively, grind out results, and in some cases, not all of them, obviously that gold medal game being one of the examples where they didn't get that clinical finishing, where they have indeed taken advantage of their chances. So we can talk about the finishing issues, the the, the fact that the team doesn't seem to always play consistently, at least going forward, um, because sometimes they can look absolutely lethal and dynamic and free-flowing, and then they go up against deep blocks and, and that just disappears in the next game. So the fact that they're going to be going up against likely the United States in that final, if they can get past Jamaica, I think will play into being a little more conservative and just waiting for the U.S. to come to them and then striking on the counter. So I think they have a decent chance of going through. Right now, I haven't learned too much that's different from the past when it comes to Canada under Priestman. Um, and I don't think we will learn anything new from now until that World Cup. Um, because at that point, I think Priestman's going to keep a consistent roster, keep a consistent 11 if everybody's fit, and just try to to go about it the same way. Because it's worked to this point, why change it? And they also haven't won the tournament since 2010. Yes, indeed. So that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we will be back next Tuesday. I know this has gone up on a Wednesday. That is just due to scheduling conflicts and the fact that a lot of news dropped last minute and we wanted to make sure that we covered all of it. So we apologize for the delay, but we will be back at our usual Tuesday time slot next week. So for Thomas Neff and the absent, but I am sure loving life, Alexander Gongay Ruzik, I'm Peter Galindo. We will see you next week and up the NFP. Yeah.